0: You are tuned to Radio Maria, a Christian voice in your home. The following program is a rebroadcast of Salvation is from the Jews with Roy Shoman. Hi. Welcome to Salvation is from the Jews, the show on Radio Maria that celebrates the Jewish roots of the Catholic Church, or seen from the other direction, the fulfillment and completion of Judaism in the Catholic Church. I have been uh, speaking the last few weeks, actually the last few weeks' shows have been a combination of of witness testimonies from uh, Jewish Catholics, uh, Jews have very gratefully entered the Catholic Church, and also some catechesis or teaching on the Jewish roots of the Catholic faith and the fulfillment of, of Judaism in Catholicism. And today I want to devote the show to the latter, to talking about some of the most central, most important ways in which Judaism provided the foundation of the Catholic Church. And before I begin today's show, let me just say that if you want to go back and listen to any of the past shows, they are archived both on the Radio Maria website, radiomaria.us, and also on my own website, which is called Salvation is from the Jews, all one word, .com. And on that website, you can also find out more about me and my apostolate and my books and hear the uh witness testimonies of uh, a number of Jews who have entered the Catholic Church and so forth. But anyway, what I want to speak about today was is uh, perhaps the seminal, the seminal event in the history of Judaism. It's the event which started the story of the Jewish people as a people, and it's also the event which set the stage for the future fulfillment of Judaism in the Catholic Church and the coming of Christ, and the continuation of the graces that he brought to earth through the sacraments of the Catholic Church. And that central event is Abraham's sacrifice, or near-sacrifice, of Isaac on Mount Moriah. This story is recounted in Genesis chapter 22. So I will begin by just reading the story, slightly edited to make it a bit shorter, and then I will discuss it and discuss the ways in which it is the beginning of the Jewish people and also the beginning of the final version of the Messianic promise and sets the stage for the uh, coming of Christ, the sacrifice of Christ, and the sacraments of the Catholic Church. And I think that will all become clear as I go on. So let me just begin with reading the passage from Genesis chapter 22. Now, uh, you are probably familiar with the story. But it revolves around Abraham. Abraham is the father of the Jewish nation. Uh, he's the first Jew. He was a pagan in the land of the Chaldeans when God revealed himself to him and told him to leave his native land and take his wife and go to a land which God would show him and God would make him the father of a great nation. So Abraham left his homeland and went where God told him, leading him through a number of adventures and then at a key point in the story god gives abraham the the central test abraham's performance in which would define the future of, of the jewish nation and and begin the the unfolding of the events which would lead to the coming of the messiah so that's where i'll pick up the story so getting to uh genesis chapter 22 after these things god tested abraham and said to him, Abraham. Abraham replied, Here I am. God said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, and offer him there as a burnt offering upon one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took his son Isaac, and went to the place God had told him. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering, and laid it on the shoulders of Isaac his son, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they both went, both of them, up the mountain together. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, I see the fire in the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God himself will provide the lamb for the sacrifice of my son. When they came to the place God had told him, Abraham built an altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on the wood. Then Abraham put forth his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. Abraham replied, Here I am. The angel said, Do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw a ram caught in a thicket by its horns, And Abraham went and took the ram, and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, Because you have done this, and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will indeed bless you, and I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven, and as the sand which is on the sheath shore. And your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies, and in your seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. That's uh, taken from Genesis chapter 22, verses 1 to 18, slightly condensed. Now, that mountain where God had asked Abraham to take his only beloved son and offer him as a sacrifice on the top of the mountain in the days of the Old Testament, was known as Mount Moriah. 2,000 years later, in the days of the New Testament, it had a different name. It was Mount Calvary, and it was one and the same mountain. And in fact, if you go to Jerusalem, you can visit the rock on which Abraham bound his son Isaac for the sacrifice. It's on uh, top of the Temple Mount. It's Right now, it's enclosed in what's known as the Dome of the Rock, which is uh, actually a um, Muslim mosque. But you can actually see the large rock on which Abraham bound his son Isaac for his sacrifice. And you can walk 500 or 600 yards down the same mountain ridge and come to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, where Jesus was crucified. It uh, was not only the same place, but as is apparent from the story, as Abraham laid the wood for his son Isaac's sacrifice on his son's shoulders and led him up that mountain, 2,000 years later, God laid the wood for the true sacrifice on his son's shoulders, Jesus' shoulders, and led him up the very same mountain, carrying the cross, carrying the wood for his sacrifice, the true fulfillment of that sacrifice. As Abraham bound Isaac to the wood for the sacrifice on top of Mount Moriah, God bound his son Jesus to the wood, nailed him to the cross, on top of that very same mountain, for his sacrifice. And one can even think that it was um, Abraham's willingness to sacrifice his beloved son, his only beloved son, Abraham, on top of Mount Moriah, which was reciprocated, one could say, 2,000 years later, by God's willingness to sacrifice his only beloved son, Jesus, on the very same mountain. Now, that passage in Genesis 22, we'll go back through it, because it is very, very, very deeply messianic. It's very deeply prophetic. Uh, it was seen as a messianic prophecy for uh, throughout the history of Judaism, and of course is seen as a prophecy of the sacrifice of Christ within uh, the Christian faith. So let me just go back to some of the verses in there. Uh, when Abraham was leading his son Isaac up the mountain, and the son asked, I see the fire in the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham replied, God himself will provide the lamb for the sacrifice, my son. This, In this, Abraham was speaking prophetically, far more deeply than he could know, because God himself did provide the lamb for the sacrifice. Not only the ram, which is caught in his, by his horn in the thickets as a kind of temporary substitute for the sacrifice of Isaac, but in fact, the true lamb for the sacrifice, which was Jesus. That lamb for the sacrifice that was temporarily substituted, the the ram that was caught uh, by its horn in the thicket, was a temporary placeholder to sort of hold the place between the uh, initial uh, instantiation, the initial instance, of the lamb for the sac- for the the sacrifice of the lamb for the remission of sins, which was Abraham's sacrifice of Isaac, temporarily substituted by the Jewish sacrificial lamb, and that Jewish sacrificial lamb, which was then sacrificed for those ta- two thousand years in between Abraham's willingness to sacrifice Isaac and the true sacrifice of Jesus on Mount Calvary, was simply a placeholder and a kind of a signpost pointing the way to the true sacrificial lamb. I'll talk more about that um, in a few moments, but let me now go back to the Jewish theology behind Abraham's willingness to sacrifice Isaac. Now, in Jewish theology, Abraham's willingness to sacrifice Isaac was always seen as instrumental in earning the Jews the privilege, the unique privilege of hosting the coming of the Messiah, being the people through whom the Messiah came. In fact, this is explicit in this passage, because when the angel tells Abraham to not sacrifice Isaac, the angel continues and says, because you have been willing to do this and have not withheld your son, your only son, in your seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. That statement, in your seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, was always seen in Judaism, as the promise to send the messiah through the seed of abraham in fact the um the ram that was caught by its horn in the thicket was always seen as a temporary placeholder waiting for the true sacrifice the coming of the messiah and the um the fact that that ram was caught by its horn in the thicket is in fact the reason why jews on their high feast days blow the shofar the shofar is in fact a ram's horn and it is to recall to god this event of abraham's willingness to sacrifice isaac before i talk about that for a few moments let me uh, blow a shofar a ram's horn which i have here perhaps the sound will be Familiar to some of you, and and perhaps you'll want to um, uh, step away from the speaker or close your ears. I have no idea how loud this will come across over the radio. That's the sound of the blowing of the shofar, which is done in the Jewish liturgy on on, um, certain feast days and on the new moon and so forth. And it is blown specifically to remind God of his promise to send the Messiah. It is a way of saying to God, do you remember when our father Abraham was so faithful to you that he was willing to sacrifice his son Isaac and instead you provided the, the ram as a as a substitute? Well, we want to remind you of the fidelity of Abraham and we want to remind you of your promise to send the Messiah in return for that fidelity. And by the way, it's been 2,000 years, 3,000 years. Where is he already? Isn't it about time? And that's actually the Jewish theological meaning of the blowing of the shofar. Um, When the temple was destroyed, the Jewish sacrifice um, ended. There was no ability for Jews to ritually sacrifice animals for the remission of sins. So the Jewish theologians had to address the question, how can our sins be remitted in the absence of animal sacrifice and in fact, the answer that Jewish theology came up with and um, this is actually from um, uh, from the uh, um, a major rabbinic writing from from the middle ages uh, and i'll read the quote from here it is the torah Torah Habayat from rabbi solomon ben abraham adred and he asks how can the sins of the jewish people be taken away since the means given in the law of moses requires temple sacrifices which became impossible since the destruction of the temple in 70 a.d since the prescribed ritual no longer exists for pushing away the impurity in the divine presence of our lord on mount moriah Isaac, our forefather, was bound to be offered as an unblemished offering and to atone for all of our sins. So you see, in Jewish theology, the atonement of sins is made possible by Abraham's sacrifice of Isaac on Mount Moriah. In other words, they have a picture, although they don't are not aware of the full depth and meaning of this picture. The Jewish theology actually has a picture that the true... The true means of taking away sin rests in the graces earned by Jesus' sacrifice on Mount Moriah, by by Jesus' sacrifice on Calvary. The picture is there. The um, let me go back um, to um, to the ram that was substituted as a temporary placeholder. That ram was substituted as a temporary placeholder in between Abraham's willingness to sacrifice Isaac. And the fulfillment of the promise of that sacrifice for the atonement of sins, which was Jesus' sacrifice on Mount Calvary. Every Jewish sacrificial lamb in between Abraham's binding of Isaac and the crucifixion of Jesus was sort of simultaneously pointing back to that original sacrificial lamb that was offered by Abraham on Mount Moriah and pointing forwards to Jesus' offering of himself on Calvary. Now, the archetypical, the central Jewish sacrificial lamb was, of course, the Passover lamb. Um, I, I hope you can see where I'm going. I'm, I, it's a, kind of a long story, uh, and I didn't know that it would get this involved as I told it, but where I am going, I hope will make clear why the crucifixion took place on Passover, why the Last Supper which was a Passover Seder, as we know from the New Testament, was simultaneously the last sacramental Passover Seder and the first sacramental Catholic Mass. In other words, the point in time at which Judaism was transformed into the Catholic Church was actually at the Last Supper, which is where Judaism, culminating in the Passover sacrifice, met the Catholic Church, beginning with the sacrifice of Christ on Calvary and the uh, offering of of Jesus' body, blood, soul, and divinity in the Eucharist at the First Mass, which was the Last Supper. So the reason I'm going into this whole story is to illumine and illustrate this central pivot point, which is the transformation point between Judaism and the Catholic faith. Now, let me get back to the story of Passover because that will make clear why the crucifixion had to take place on Passover. And it will also tie together this unity between the story of Passover and the Jewish sacrificial lamb and the story of salvation through Christianity. So let me step back to the story of Passover. And then I will, uh, after going through the story of Passover, you'll see, I hope, how this all connects once again to Abraham's sacrifice of Isaac and Jesus' sacrifice on Mount Calvary. So the story of Passover is the story of the Jews' exodus from slavery in Egypt. I think many of you are familiar with the story. I will very briefly uh, recap it. It it appears in the um, Old Testament in um, uh, Exodus, uh, Exodus 11 and 12, I believe. But the, the Jews were slaves in Egypt. The um, God raised up a savior of the Jewish people, Moses, to free the Jewish people from slavery in Egypt. Moses went to Pharaoh and said, um, you know, let my people go. Uh, Pharaoh needed proof that Moses was sent by God. And God had told Moses, in order to prove to Pharaoh that I've sent you, um, I will give you some miracles to perform for Pharaoh. So Moses asked Pharaoh to let the Jewish people go, to let them. Um, Pharaoh refused. Moses performed a miracle. Uh, the, uh, it's a sequence of miracles. Um, they're known as the Ten Plagues. They're a sequence of plagues that befell Egypt. The, all of the water in the Nile was turned to blood. Um, there was a plague of frogs. There was a plague of locusts. There was a plague of boils. Um, there was darkness over the land and so forth. And at each of these plagues, um, Pharaoh initially relented and said he would let the Jewish people go. And then he reneged on his promise and went back on his promise. And so Moses had to go through the sequence of ten plagues until the final and culminating plague, which was the slaying of all of the firstborn in Egypt. So uh, Moses announced to Pharaoh that, this plague would come upon Egypt and all of the firstborn would be slain. Um, and then Moses went back to the Jewish people and said, in order that our firstborn are not slain, what you are to do on this night, and this night was called the night of Passover, and I will mention in a moment why it was called the night of Passover, you are all to sacrifice a lamb without spot or blemish and without breaking any of its bones, and dip some hyssop in the blood of the lamb and daub it on the doorposts of your house. And that way, the an- when the angel of death comes through the land of Egypt to slay all of the firstborn, the angel of death will see the blood of the lamb on the doorposts of your house and will pass over that house and not slay the firstborn. That's how the angel of death would know that it was a Jewish household. And so the Jewish people did this. Their firstborn were spared. The firstborn in the Pharaoh's household and of all of the Egyptians were killed. And that was the final plague that convinced the Pharaoh to let the Jewish people go. Now, the reason it's called Passover is precisely because it was the blood of that lamb on the doorpost of the house which would cause the angel of death to pass over that house and not slay the people. Uh, the the firstborn, uh, excuse me, of of the people in that household. Now, the uh, story of Exodus then continues from that first Passover night. By the way, I hope you see the echo there already of the uh, slaying of the firstborn. We saw that theme in Abraham's willingness to uh, sacrifice Isaac, and of course, in God's sacrifice of his only begotten son. And, of course, we see the uh, sacrificial lamb to spare the people. Now, once the pharaoh allowed the Jewish people to leave, the Jewish people got up all their belongings and fled in the middle of the night. And they uh, got a little distance away when the pharaoh, again, changed his mind and reneged on his promise and sent the army out after them. The Jewish people got to the side of the Red Sea. They looked like they were about to be trapped between the Red Sea and the Pharaoh's army. And Moses performed another miracle and divided the waters of the Red Sea. And the Jewish people were led through the Red Sea, dry shod, and the Pharaoh's army was drowned in the sea. Then the Jewish people wandered through the desert for 40 years on their way to Israel, the Promised Land. And... um and finally arrived in the Promised Land. Now, this story of the Exodus from Egypt was always seen in Christian typology from the days of the very first of the Church Fathers, the first generation of Christians after the Apostles themselves, as a picture in advance of salvation coming through Christ. Basically, a picture in advance of Christianity. And the story that the Church Fathers told, and most notably this, this story is recounted by Saint Cyril of uh, uh, Jerusalem, uh, but the 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 story that Saint Cyril told and and the other church fathers also at times recounted is the following: It's that the Jews' slavery to Pharaoh in Egypt is a picture of mankind's slavery to Satan. The Pharaoh is a picture of Satan. Mankind's slavery in Egypt is a picture of mankind's slavery under the power of the devil. The Jews being freed from the power of Pharaoh by passing through the waters of the Red Sea, was seen as a picture of mankind being freed from the power of Satan by passing through the waters of baptism. The Jews wandering for 40 years through the desert was seen as a picture of uh, mankind, of the Christians wandering through the desert of this life on the way to the promised land as the promised land for the Jews was Israel the promised land for the Christian is the true promised land the new Jerusalem heaven now What sustained the Jews in their 40 years of wandering the desert the miraculous bread from heaven the manna that God calls To rain down from heaven and miraculously sustained the Jews in their 40 years of wandering in the desert What sustains the Christian in his wandering? For, uh, through the desert of this life on the way to the true promised land also the miraculous bread from heaven, only this time the true miraculous bread from heaven, the Eucharist, the body and blood of Jesus Christ, given to mankind to sustain him on his journey through the desert of this life. This equation between the manna in the desert that sustained the Jews in the days of the Exodus, this equation between manna and the Eucharist, was made explicitly by none other than Jesus himself, in uh, John chapter 6, and I will turn to that passage. Uh, please um, uh, please indulge me a moment, because I did not have it in my notes where I hoped to. So, uh, let me read that passage. Jesus makes it perfectly clear, the equation between the Eucharist and the manna in the desert. So, now, reading from John 6, the words of Jesus... Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven. My father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. I am the bread of life, and he who comes to me shall not hunger, and he who believes in me shall never um, thirst. I am the bread of life. Truly, truly, I say to you, who, who, he who believes has eternal life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread which comes down from heaven, that a man may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread which I shall give for the life of the world is my flesh. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. This is the bread which came down from heaven, not such as the fathers ate and died. He who eats this bread will live forever. The word of the Lord. How much clearer can this be how much clearer could jesus have made it that the manna in the wilderness was a picture was a prefigurement of the true manna in the wilderness the true bread from heaven to sustain us in the desert of this life which is his flesh and his blood so let me uh go back i am going to uh be jumping back and forth between the jewish theology and the uh, catholic deeper understanding of that theology around the, the sacrifice of, um, of Passover. And I hope, uh, I ho- first of all, I hope that you'll forgive me the the back and forth, which is intrinsic in, in doing this, but I also hope very fervently that at the end of this, uh, at least in your own minds, this will form one unified picture which makes it compellingly clear why the Last Supper was a Passover Seder and the first Catholic Mass. So let me talk a little bit about this, this Passover lamb. Now, the first Passover lamb was the Passover lamb sacrifice on the night of the first Passover in Egypt. The Jews were then commanded every year, uh, on the anniversary of that event to repeat the sacrifice, to celebrate the Passover Seder in thanksgiving to God for the miracle that he wrought in freeing the Jewish people. But the sacrifice of the Passover Seder, the, the sacrifice of Passover in the Passover Seder, in those subsequent years, was more than a thanksgiving to God, and it was more than a remembrance. In fact, in Jewish theology, the teaching was that the um, celebrating the Passover Seder and participating in the Passover sacrifice, the Passover Seder, was not simply a memorial, but it was a it was a participation. It was a participation of the Jewish people throughout time in that original Passover night. It was them taking on themselves the grace, so to speak, of that initial redemption of Passover, and it was making themselves present at that initial Passover. Again, in this Jewish theology, I hope that you see the fulfillment of that picture that was only presented as a picture in Jewish theology, which is, of course, the Catholic Mass. is not just a memorial of the sacrifice at Calvary. It is a true being present, and participating in the grace of the sacrifice at Calvary as though we were at the foot of the cross. And this was already foreshadowed in the Jewish theology around the Passover Seder. In fact, the participation in the Passover Seder is so central to the, uh, to, to being a member of the Jewish people that it is explicit in Jewish theology that, um, that, uh, There there are very few ways that a Jew can lose his redemption, can lose his share in the world to come, as is expressed in Judaism. This is a topic for another show, but the whole nature of salvation is different in Judaism than it is in Christianity. In Judaism, salvation comes from being a member of the Jewish nation, from being a member of the Jewish people. Any Jew who remains united, with the body of the Jewish people has his share in the world to come, uh, despite any personal sin or personal failings of that Jew. The teaching, though, is that the only way a Jew can lose his salvation is by cutting himself off from the corporate body of the Jewish people. And how does he cut himself off from the corporate body of the Jewish people? If he fails if he fails to observe the Passover Seder, if he fails to participate in the Passover Seder, he has cut himself off from the body of the Jewish people and lost his salvation. I think, again, the Catholic can see a very powerful foreshadowing in this of the role of the Mass and of the participating in the Eucharist and the way that participating in the Eucharist is the ultimate way of, of um, growing in our identity as a member of the body of Christ and participating in the salvation that jesus won for us on on calvary now i'm already halfway through the show and um, i'll use the second half of the show to uh, complete the story but uh, at this moment i think i will we will take a, a, a short musical break and i will come back at the other side of the break with the rest of the story tying together the foreshadowing in judaism the fulfillment of the catholic church all revolving around the pivot point of the of the transformation between Passover and uh, the true fulfillment of that Passover and Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, all meeting at the Last Supper. So let's take the musical break, and I'll be back in a moment or two. You're listening to Radio Maria, a Christian voice in your home. We now return to a rebroadcast of Salvation is from the Jews with Roy showman Hi, welcome back to Salvation is from the Jews. And uh, as the show is celebrates the continuation of Judaism into the Catholic Church, the fulfillment of Judaism in the Catholic Church, if you've just joined us, we've been talking about that most central moment in all of time, in all of the story of salvation, in all of creation, that moment when Judaism was transformed into the Catholic Church, which was the Last Supper, which was simultaneously a Passover Seder. One could think it was the last sacramental Passover Seder and the first Catholic Mass. Um, it's the point at which the the entire history of salvation leading up to Christ Met the entire history of salvation, spreading forward in time from after Christ, which is the Catholic Church. So, getting back to the main main line of the story, so to speak, I think we're all aware that the Last Supper was in fact a Passover Seder. That's made explicit in a number of places in in sacred scripture, and I'll just mention uh, a couple so that it's it's totally clear. Uh, Mark chapter fourteen. Uh, Jesus sends out his disciples and, um, to find the room to have, to host the Last Supper. And the passage in four, Mark 14, verse, uh, 13 is the disciples sent out, set out and went to the city and found it as Jesus had told them. And there they prepared the Passover. And in, um, the, uh, in, in the Gospel according to John, uh, chapter 19, when Pilate, at the time of Pilate's um, examination of Jesus, the uh, the passage uh, John nineteen verse fourteen says, "Now it was the day of preparation for the Passover, and so forth." So there's no question that the Last Supper was in fact a Passover seder. There's a little bit of scholarly debate that has to do with why did that seder take place on the evening before the beginning of Passover, rather than the evening of the beginning of Passover. There are a number of um, explanations offered for why that was the case, which would take us a little bit far afield at the moment. Now, we also know over and over again from the New Testament that Jesus was, in fact, the true Passover lamb who was sacrificed. Um, we know that I mean, uh, anyone who, who attends a Mass, who is present at a Mass, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, which is, of course, uh, a a citation of the words of John the Baptist in in the first chapter of the Gospel of John, that, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, is a reference to the Jewish sacrificial lamb. And the fact that the Passover lamb is explicit in, for instance, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, St. Paul says, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. So the fact that Christ was the true Passover lamb is quite explicit to us as as Christians. So let's look for a moment at how the Passover lamb within Judaism would have been prepared. Now, and and as I give this description, um, I invite you to imagine in your mind's eye the Last Supper the table presented in front of the disciples and Jesus at the Last Supper, and also, perhaps, if you will, every Passover Seder table at which Jesus was present growing up as a boy, because, of course, every Passover they would have celebrated the Passover table, and at the center of this table would have been the sacrificed Passover lamb. Now, let me read the instructions for the preparation of the Passover lamb, from the Talmud. The Talmud is the Jewish oral law. So, uh, reading from the Talmud, um, smooth staves of wood are driven through the shoulders of the lamb in order to hang and skin it, and then a skewer of pomegranate wood is thrust through the Passover lamb from its mouth to its buttocks. So it was prepared with one skewer of wood from from forepaw to forepaw, paw across. And one skewer of wood from it vertically, you know, down its spine from its head through its buttocks. In other words, on a wooden cross. And just to make that clear from Christian sources, St. Justin Martyr in the second century wrote, for the Passover lamb, which is roasted, is roasted and dressed up in the form of a cross. For one spit is transfixed right through from the lower parts up to the head and one across the back. Uh, to which are attached the legs of the lamb. So again, we have uh, evidence from a Christian source that the Passover lamb presented on the Passover Seder table would have looked like a crucified lamb with one skewer of wood uh, uh, stretching its four legs and one skewer of wood vertically from its head to its buttocks. Now we can just imagine the child Jesus, you know, from three, four years old. Seated at the Passover table, looking at that sacrificed Passover lamb on the cross, and knowing that that's what he had come for that that's the fate that had um that that um, was in his store for him the um Now the Passover offering within Judaism was what's known as a thanksgiving offering if in the Old Testament, there are about four or five different kinds of sacrificial offerings there's the burnt offering the free will offering the sin offering the peace offering the trespass offering and so forth and the passover offering in fact fell into the category of a thanksgiving offering now the talmud asks after the messiah comes will sacrifices continue or cease the answer that the talmud now again the talmud is the jewish oral tradition this is This is hardcore, canonical, dogmatic Jewish theology. The Talmud answers the question, will sacrifices cease after the coming of the Messiah, or will there still be sacrifices? The answer that the Talmud comes up with is only one kind of sacrifice will continue after the coming of the Messiah, the Thanksgiving sacrifice. What is Eucharist? What's the meaning of the word Eucharist? Eucharist is Greek for Thanksgiving, the Thanksgiving sacrifice again, a true foreshadowing in Judaism of the truth of its fulfillment in the Catholic faith, in the Catholic Church, in the sacraments of the Catholic Church, that Judaism itself foretold that after the coming of the Messiah, all of the sacrifices would cease except for one, the Eucharist. The um, connection between manna and the desert and the um, uh, essentially the Eucharist, the, the bread, true bread from heaven, the the Blessed Sacrament is also foreshadowed in Jewish theology. Um, from the Jewish Midrash, it says, uh, quote, As the first Redeemer caused manna to descend, it is stated, Because I shall cause, re- to, excuse me, because I shall cause to rain bread from heaven for you, so will the latter Redeemer cause manna to descend. In other words, in Jewish theology, in the Midrash, it says, because manna from heaven descended with the foreshadowing of the Messiah, that is, Moses, who was the initial savior of the Jewish people, so will the true Messiah cause bread from heaven to descend. Now, uh, uh, let me use that as a way of um, transitioning into the last, last part of today's talk, which has to do with the intense messianic content of the Passover Seder itself because if in fact the fulfillment of, of the Passover was to come with the crucifixion on Passover, there should be a hint that when the Messiah comes he will in fact come on Passover and that is incontrovertible in Jewish theology is the fact that in Jewish theology it is taught that when the Messiah comes, he will come on Passover night. Because the foreshadowing of the coming of the Messiah, which was the exodus from Egypt, took place on Passover night, the fulfillment is going to have to take place on Passover night. Uh, that is explicit in the Talmud. It says, quote, on that very night, Passover, know that I will redeem you. In fact, this this teaching in Jewish theology that the Messiah will come on Passover night permeates the entire Passover Seder. The entire Passover Seder is full of this lively expectation of the coming of the Messiah, because since the Messiah is going to have to come on Passover night, who knows, maybe this is the Passover that the Messiah will come. That is the reason why at every Passover Seder table in a Jewish home, there are place settings for all the guests, but there's also one place setting with one full cup of wine, which isn't touched, and that's the place setting for Elijah, which is kept there in the center of the table. Because, according to Jewish theology, when the Messiah comes, his coming is going to be announced in advance by Elijah the prophet. And so, if this is the Passover, when the Messiah comes... First, Elijah is going to have to come. And so if this is the Passover of the Messiah, we better have a place setting for Elijah so that when Elijah comes to announce the Messiah coming, you know we'll be ready for him. And that's why there's this place setting for Elijah in the middle of the table. And in fact, near the end of the Passover Seder, in every Jewish home, the children rush to the door and throw open the door to see if Elijah is there to announce the coming of the Messiah. And if he's there to invite him in and partake of the Passover Seder, and if not, to return to the Passover table somewhat crestfallen, because this is not the Passover that the Messiah will come at, but perhaps he will come at next Passover. That's also why the Passover Seder ends with a shout of all those present, next year in Jerusalem. They shout this precisely because, in Jewish theology, when the Messiah comes, the Jews will all be regathered, miraculously, in Jerusalem. And therefore, if next year is the Passover when the Messiah comes, then they will be regathered in Jerusalem. So that shout, next year in Jerusalem, is a kind of joyful anticipation and hope and prayer that if this isn't the Passover that the Messiah came, then at least perhaps next year will be the Passover when the Messiah finally comes. By the way, as a little bit of an aside, this prophecy that the prophet Elijah will come to announce the coming of the Messiah in advance, which the Jews have from the Jewish scriptures, Malachi chapter 4. The verse is, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. This prophecy was explicitly fulfilled, we know, by John the Baptist uh, announcing the coming of Jesus in the New Testament, and the fact that John the Baptist came in the spirit and power of Elijah was made explicit already in the first chapter of Luke when the angel appeared to Zechariah. The angel announced the coming of the future birth of John the Baptist, saying uh, he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to children, um, and so forth. So, so the fact that that was explicitly fulfilled. And the fact that that was fulfilled is explicit in the New Testament. Now, um, let me, uh, I'm in the last few moments of the show already, the last few minutes, so let me see if I can kind of step back and paint a little bit of a broader brushed uh, picture of this, or at least recap where we've been, the, the entire, the unfolding, the declenching the release of the entire messianic promise, the entire promise of God to send the Messiah through the seed of Abraham, which is what the Jewish people were all about, they were the seed of Abraham through whom the Messiah would come, was precipitated, was was begun by Abraham's willingness to sacrifice his only beloved son on Mount Moriah, loading the wood for his son's sacrifice on his shoulders, leading him up to the top of the mountain, Binding him on the wood and being prepared to sacrifice him to God, because Abraham did this, God uh, promised Abraham that through his son, all uh, through his seed, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. That was the promise of the coming of the Messiah, which was of course the promise of the coming of Jesus through the seed of Abraham. And when Jesus did come and was going to fulfill the entire messianic promise through his sacrifice on Calvary, it was the very same mountain by taking by God placing the wood for his only beloved son's sacrifice on his shoulders, leading him up the very same mountain, binding him to the wood by nailing him to the cross and sacrificing him there. The, um, the placeholder for the Jewish sacrifice in between Isaac and Jesus was the Jewish sacrificial lamb, the, the prime example of that being the Passover lamb, and we went through the, all of the ways that Jesus was the fulfillment of that Passover Lamb, both in Jewish theology and uh, by looking back at, uh, uh, excuse me, both in Catholic theology and by looking back at Jewish theology. Now, since it's it's such a vibrant picture of the fulfillment of Judaism in the Catholic faith, um, it is of course a little bit hard rending. For instance, a little bit hard rending to hear the Jews blowing the shofar reminding God of his promise to send the Messiah and being unaware that God did send the Messiah and not knowing the fulfillment of Judaism that's waiting for them in the Catholic Church and the infinite, infinitely multiplied gifts of God that are waiting for them in the sacraments of the Catholic Church. Now, we had the Feast of the Sacred Heart of Jesus just uh, a few weeks ago, so I would like to close the show by reading a uh, prayer that pope leo the 13th wrote for the feast of the sacred heart and it is a, a prayer for the conversion of the jews it's a very beautiful prayer i think it's a very mystical and deep prayer because what pope leo the 13th did was he went back to the eve of the crucifixion when pilate was wanted to release jesus said i find no sin in this man i find no crime in this man and the Jews, the crowd of Jews in front of Pilate's palace cried out, crucify, crucify him, his blood be on us and on our children. And it was in, in the echo of this self-imprecation of the Jewish people, his blood be on us and on our children, that Pope Leo XIII wrote this prayer. So let me, um, close by reading this prayer. Be thou king of all those who are still involved in the darkness of other religions, and refuse not to draw them all into the light and kingdom of God. Turn thine eyes of mercy towards the children of the Jewish race, from the beginning thy chosen people. Of old they called upon themselves the blood of the Savior. May it now descend upon them a shower of redemption and of life. Amen. So you see what Pope Leo the Thirteenth did? He took that that call of the Jewish people, his blood be on us and on our children, and asked God to transform that into a prayer that they were unknowingly praying to be at the foot of the cross and let the blood of redemption that flowed from the true Passover lamb, the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, let that be the blood on them and their children. Let that blood from the from the cross, to the the you know blood of redemption and of mercy from the side of Jesus poured down upon the Jewish people as a shower of redemption and of life so with that I will say goodbye for today thank you for being here I hope you join me again next week for Salvation is from the Jews where we will once again go further into the inner relationship the depth of the relationship between Judaism and the Catholic faith and show both the truth of Judaism fulfilled in the Catholic faith and the truths of the Catholic faith foreshadowed in Judaism. So thank you very much, and I'll be back with you next week. You're listening to Radio Maria, a Christian voice in your home. The program you just heard was a rebroadcast of Salvation is from the Jews with Roy Showman.